Lord, this is the day that we as a family celebrate the sending of your son to this earth to become a baby, to grow up and to become a man and to die for our sins. We celebrate that, Lord, that birth, that death and that resurrection, which forms what we call the gospel. It's because of that truth that our lives are changed and that we have a relationship with you. We have sung to you, Lord, and we now say from our hearts, Happy Birthday, Jesus. May you be glorified in our lives. And thank you for the gift, Heavenly Father, of your Son. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. It begins in Luke 25 saying, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We want to talk about Simeon today simply because no one ever does. When a person goes to see a movie at the theater, it is very rare that anyone will stay and watch the credits that come up after the film. As soon as the credits go up on the screen, it's time to leave. It's time to split. No one really cares who the second cameraman was in the movie or who the musical researcher was for the film. They're concerned only about the main actors and how it ended. And that's the way it seems on Christmas that people are interested in the, quote, main actors of the Christmas story. You always hear a message on the shepherds or the magi or Joseph and Mary. Of course, the main character is always Jesus and he always will be. But there are those backstage people that nobody pays attention to, like Simeon or Anna or Zechariah. Those are the forgotten people, the little people of Christmas. It only seems natural that uh, we would concentrate on the main actors like Joseph and Mary and the shepherds. One of the reasons is when you open your nativity set, that's what you find. You find a porcelain Mary or a Joseph or even some sheep, some shepherds, some magi. When was the last time you saw a porcelain Simeon in a Christmas set? You don't find them. And to the world, people like Simeon are totally inconsequential. They're nobodies. And yet I have found that it is those inconsequential people that often are the greatest saints on earth. They quietly backstage have the life of Jesus Christ developed in them. Such was this man, Simeon. Now, Simeon never wrote a book, never had a TV ministry. You don't find him in Hebrews chapter 11, but there is a description about this man in these verses that is enviable in the spiritual realm. The Bible tells us, and it's my life's verse, that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the people who really aren't much to put the glory of the gospel in, to put to shame the people who think they're something. And that is why this Christmas story is for you and me. Because, you see, Caesar in Rome never heard or never cared about a baby being born out in the stables of Bethlehem. The Roman Senate didn't know what was happening and they didn't care. The Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priest could care less. But there was a group of people, simple folks, 
who were waiting in hopeful expectation that something would happen someday soon in Jerusalem. And if you look down at verse 38, you see a hint. It says, of all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. It seems that there was a group of people who were quiet, backstage, inconsequential people looking for the Lord to do something in their generation. Simeon was one of them. Let's look at a description of this man. It says in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, whose name, by the way, means to hear and obey. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. In this description of Simeon, there is nothing about his occupation, what he did in life. It doesn't say, now there was a man named Simeon who was a prominent citizen, a local banker in Jerusalem, who had a very nice house up in the Jerusalem Tanawan area of that town. And he had a PhD and he was known for being a wise, smart, industrious human being. Just, there was a man named Simeon. He was a local boy, but he had, to his credit, a description of godliness as put forth in the first part of those verses. You know, occupation and education and background are things that are important to us. The first question we ask when we meet someone is, hey, what's your name? The second question we ask people is, what do you do? It is important for us because, unfortunately, we peg people as to their importance in life on the scale of what do you do? How are you contributing to my society? There's nothing giving a, uh, here of his background, as we said, or of his education or where he lived. Simply that it says in verse 25, he was just, he was devout, he was waiting for something, he was in ex expectation. And look at the end of that verse, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now that is a wonderful description, and would to God that would describe each one of us, right? Just or righteous, devoted, waiting for the Lord, and the Holy Spirit was upon us. You will notice that this description is not an outward description. It doesn't say anything about how he dressed or how he looked, how tall he was. It was an inside description of his heart. And of course, we remember in the book of 1 Samuel, as God told the prophet, Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance because it's only man that's concerned about the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Here's a description of the heart of Simeon. Not the stuff that's unimportant, like what he was wearing in the temple that day. Simply, he was just, devout, he was waiting, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We make a big deal, and we ooh and we ah over a person's human credentials. Well, where'd you go to school, son? What's your background? What are your degrees and your honors? 
When we meet a person, we look at how they dress and how their hair is, and we kind of size them up. Admit it, we do it. Even though we say we shouldn't do it, man does look at the outward appearance. I was in Dallas this week for a meeting of a missions board, and I got off the airplane, my blue jeans, my leather jacket. The board members were there to meet me at the airport, and they smiled and they said, we can always count on you to never look like a pastor. Welcome to Dallas. Look at verse 25 again. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let me explain what that means. Very near to the Jewish heart was the concept that someday a Mashiach or a Messiah, an anointed one, would come. A deliverer. Someone who would come and just blow the doors off the Roman Empire. Who would come and take control of the Jews and reign in Jerusalem. And just remake the whole world and bring the Jews to a supreme position. And at this time, it was especially important that they were waiting for the Messiah because the Jews were very oppressed by the Roman government. They felt the yoke of slavery on their back. They wanted more than anything for the Messiah to come. And here's a guy who is waiting for that. And there's mentioned three times of the Holy Spirit in these verses. Look at it again. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, verse 25, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Next verse. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Now this guy was tuned in to the right frequency. It is recorded in secular history that about this time, the Jews, by and large, especially some of the rulership, felt that God had let them down. They had felt abandoned by God for this reason. There was a prophecy way back in Genesis chapter 49. And the prophecy says that the scepter or the orb of rulership will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And from that time on, all of the rabbis took that prophecy to mean the Messiah, that Judah in the south will maintain rulership, and when that rulership is passed to another power, the Messiah will come. Well, at this time, right before Jesus was born, Herod the Great was ruling things, Caesar in Rome was ruling things, they took over Israel and subjugated it. They came into Jerusalem, went up to the Jews, and went up to the Sanhedrin, who at that point had the right of capital punishment for their own crimes. And they said, we're in charge now, Jewish people. We're the boss. You have no right to execute anyone or pass any judgment on any major crime. It goes to the Roman Senate first. And at that point, the scepter or rulership was passed from the Jews to Rome. The Jews wailed this condition. In fact, they marched around Jerusalem, the leaders, in sackcloth, bewailing the fact that God had let them down because Shiloh had not come and the scepter departed from Judah. Little did those rulers know as they were marching. At the time of their marching, there was a young man in Nazareth about ready to lay down his carpenter's tools and ride into Jerusalem. The scepter had departed from Judah. But Shiloh had come, the Messiah. Well, Simeon probably walked in the temple every single day because God told him, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. 
Now, the temple is a big place. Thousands of people can fit in this thing. So he's probably walking up and down the temple courts, looking at people going, is that the Messiah? No, that doesn't look. He's not Messiah material. No. I wonder if he's the Messiah. Every day he was looking in the temple courts until one day the Holy Spirit moved upon him to go inside one more time. And over in the corner he saw a young, poor couple, a carpenter and his wife, young kids having a baby. And God said, that's it. He's the Messiah. It doesn't say that Simeon argued and said, this poor little baby, the Messiah? He probably went up to Joseph and Mary and said, excuse me. What I'm about to say probably sounds really weird, but could I hold your baby? And as he held that little baby and looked, he said something and he uttered a beautiful psalm of worship that blew the minds of Joseph and Mary. Look at it. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And here's the reaction. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. In that little psalm of worship was a concise picture of two things. First of all, the nature of God. And secondly, a little blueprint of the life of the Messiah. Notice that he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart. That means I can die now, Lord, in peace according to your word. The truth of that phrase is, God, you are sovereign, you are in control, and you keep your promise. In fact, the NIV says, Sovereign Lord, you've kept your promise. According to your promise, now you are letting me depart in peace. It's a beautiful truth. The truth of the sovereignty of God. Life never gets so totally out of control if you are a believer because backstage or behind the scenes is a sovereign Lord who's the boss. Even though there's catastrophes and at times you think life has lost its control, God still has a firm grip of the rope, even though you don't think you do and perhaps you don't. God is in charge. He is totally sovereign. He's not almost sovereign. He's all the way. And he keeps his promise. I'm sure there were days when Simeon saw the Roman soldiers marching around the Temple Mount, beating some of the Jewish people, abusing them. He was thinking, the scepter has departed. And he was probably saying, Lord, my people are in despair. The Romans are oppressing us. But here he finally says, just like you promised, You've come. This is the Messiah. Notice what, is he, what he says about him. For my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation. Think about that. What did God promise that he would see? Salvation. And when he turned around, what did he see? A little baby. In other words, salvation is a person. Got it? Salvation is not a set of teachings. It is not a code of ethics. It is not a mantra for meditation. It's a person. Jesus never said, 
My teachings are the way, the truth, the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He never said, follow my teachings. He said, follow me. He never said, as many as receive my teachings, they have the authority to become the children of God. He said, as many as received himself, God gave the authority to become the children of God. Salvation isn't something you do. It's a person that you receive. Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. Let me tell you what the word is. The word salvation is a Greek word, soterion, which means a person who is fitted or able to save. A person who is fitted or able to save. Jesus Christ was a person who could do a job and was fitted to do a job that nobody else could accomplish. He was one who was fitted and able to save for two reasons. First of all, because he was God. Jesus was fitted to save us because he was God. And that's important because only God is equal to the needs of mankind. No human being is equal to the needs of life and the strains of life that you and I face. There's not a human being on the planet who is strong enough to take and to handle all of the hassles of life. Only God can do it. He is fitted to save because he is God. I don't know if you know this, but the Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire, did not fall because it was invaded the Roman Empire fell because it was weak morally and spiritually. The entire Roman Empire was built upon a value system of their gods. They based everything upon their gods, and their gods were simply amplified humanity. The gods of the Romans were finite and limited. So the whole value system was not able to bear up under the strains and the stresses of life. It's sort of like a bridge. When they engineer and build a bridge... They build it to sustain a certain amount of weight. And it's rated. And so you take big trucks over the bridge, the bridge can handle it. But there's a weight limit. If you get a truck with a load that is exceeding the capabilities of the bridge that was engineered, there comes a time when that bridge will begin to crack and fracture because it can't maintain, it can't sustain the pressure, the weight. And so it was with the Roman Empire. And so it is with every man. If you build your life upon yourself and humanism or any other person, there comes a time when the pressures of life will fracture that which you have built. It is not fitted to save you. So Jesus was able to save, first of all, because he was divine. He was God. Second of all, Jesus was fitted to save because he was a man. And only a man can die. And Jesus Christ was completely perfect God and completely perfect man. And because Jesus was man, he could die for the sins of the world. But also because he was man, he could touch and relate to the problems of man. He was not an isolated God who never stepped out of his office, so to speak, and saw the real world. Jesus became a man to die for us and to touch us at our problem area. Here's why. Man is totally incapable of reaching out beyond his natural world. You see, humans are in a box, a natural box. 
And the walls of that box are our time and space dimension. Every now and then, somebody comes along and says, Hey, let's reach out into the supernatural realm and get out of our natural box. And every time somebody says that, a new religion is created. But man, by himself, is incapable of reaching out into the spiritual infinite realm. And that only makes sense. Man is a finite, limited creature. That which is finite can never totally comprehend that which is infinite. And so God must reveal himself to man who's inside this little box. Because we're limited. We can't get out. Only God can get in. And so God did. For centuries, God started speaking to man inside that box. He sent Moses. He sent prophets. He gave revelation, dreams, visions, and a whole series of revelation. And that's what Paul said. God, who at different times and different places spoke in times past through the prophets to the fathers, has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. God had been speaking to man in the box. Finally, God crawled inside the box and became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. And that's what Christmas is all about. God became a baby, packaged in human skin, set upon the earth and the breasts of a mother in total dependence, being God, yet being perfect man. Because of that, he can relate to us. I noticed something I've told you a couple times about my son Nathan. Ever since he was just a, a young lad, and he still is a young lad, and that is, Nathan responds to my voice. I walk in the kitchen door in the afternoon, I say, Nathan? Daddy, daddy. He runs through the kitchen. One day as I was looking down at him, now I'm almost 6'5", and I'm looking down at my little boy, who's a midget. He's tall for his age, but he's short. I'm looking down at him, and I'm thinking, I must look like Goliath to this kid. And I started realizing that because I remembered when I could fit underneath the pancake cupboard at my house when I was growing up. And I would look up at my mom and think, she is so huge. Now, my mother is five foot one. <laughs> but at that angle, being a little kid, she was immense. And I thought, if my five foot one mother looked like a giant, I must look towering to this kid. And I noticed that when I would get down on the floor, when I'd sit down, and I'm about his level when I sit down, a change took over. All of a sudden, he can relate to me. He became more touching. He'd hug more. He'd jump on me more. I'm his level. Now, I'm still his father. If I stand up, or if I sit down, but I am representing myself differently to him. Still dad, but instead of this Nathan authority figure, I'm an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball daddy. And when I'm on his level, he can now relate to me because I'm at the level of his world. Max Lucado, in one of his books, writes something very beautiful about the incarnation. Listen to this. It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. 
And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him and in the, had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was completely divine and completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to the wooing of women. He got colds, burped, had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with the hammer. It's easier to stomach him that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be, Let him into the mire and the muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he then pull us out. Jesus Christ, God became a baby. That reason. Because he was perfect God, but he became a man. And you see, that's the perfect mediator because he can touch God being God, and he can touch man being man and bring them together. What a perfect link. God became man. And because he experienced pain, rejection, because he wept. Now, when you come to God and you say, God, I'm suffering. He can look at his own scars and say, I know. I can relate. You see, Jesus passed into the heavens as a wounded man in a glorified state. But as a man who was wounded, Thomas saw the nails in his hands, on his brow, on his side, and his feet. That's how he looked when he ascended into heaven. And he's at the right hand of the Father, praying, interceding for you and I. Not as a figurehead, not as a divine executive who never comes out of his office to see what's happening, but as a man who went through what you and I went through. And because of that, he is totally fitted to save. Let's go on see what he says. 
Verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon said that this Jesus was not only salvation, but he was light, which implies only one thing, that the world and the society in which Simeon lived was in darkness. Because what's the main purpose of light? To dispel darkness. Do you bring a flashlight out on a sunshiny day to see around? No, the purpose of light is to dispel darkness. Now, if you would have gone to Herod's palace and you would have brought Ted Koppel with you to interview Herod, you would have said, Herod, would you say that the Gentile world is in darkness? He'd say, are you kidding? Yeah, the Gentile world's the Roman world. We've brought light to this world. Education. We're not in darkness. Not the Roman Gentile world. No way. If you would have gone over to the Greek philosophers and said, is the world in darkness? They would have probably said, well, most of them are. We're not. We've given you the writings of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. We've brought enlightenment to the world. If you'd have walked up to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and said, is the world in darkness? They would have said, yes, they are, but we're not. We have the schools of the Pharisees. We have the religious code of ethics of our nation. We're not in darkness. And you know what? If you walk up to people today, go up to the education professors at the university and say, are we in darkness? They'd say, oh, oh, no. Now, years ago they were in darkness. But we have evolved to a higher state. We've got universities, computers, education. We can see to the galaxies. We have sophisticated medical equipment to cure diseases that weren't even thought about years ago. And while we have the sophistication, there is a spiritual darkness. The more complicated and the more educated our society gets, it becomes more and more in despair. How do I know that? Look at the suicide rate. Take a real look at your world. As they say, wake up and smell the coffee. People are despairing because we have sought to rule God out of life. We've rejected the light. Now that's a picture of America. We have, all nations are most blessed because the gospel has come to our land and we are rejecting that light. At Christmas time especially, people get very religious for about three days. They start giving to organizations. They start feeling, i got to get spiritual. They want the feeling of piety while eliminating Jesus Christ. They call it Xmas. Yuletide greetings. Or they'll have a nativity set of Jesus stuffed over in one corner of the living room. That's where he belongs. We've ruled him out. And Christmas is like having a party, a birthday party, without inviting the one whose birthday it is. There were some kids having a Christmas play at their church. They weren't our kids. But in this one church, they're having a play, and in the manger, they decided that they would put a 40-watt light bulb covered over with a sheet to show the illumination of Jesus. It was a cute thing. And there was a special time during the play when the lighting director, who was also one of their peers, a kid, was to turn off all the lights in the auditorium and let this one 40-watt light bulb shine. Well, he was so confused, he turned off all the lights. And there was moments of tenseness, and finally one of the shepherds in the play said, Hey, you switched off Jesus. <laughs> well, that's what we've done. 
The world has switched off Jesus at Christmas and switched on the decorations. We've ruled him out of our life. And yet he is a light. That's what he's intended to become. Now look at the message to Mary and Joseph. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And I like the way that that reads. Joseph and his mother. Not his father and mother because Joseph was the foster father. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In that little message is a concise blueprint of Jesus Christ. He will cause many to rise and many to fall. In other words, Jesus will be one of the most loved and yet also one of the most hated people in this land. And he was. Jesus, when he walked the earth, people loved him. But there was a whole group of people who hated him. There was a divided crowd. There weren't many people who said, yeah, Jesus is a nice guy, good teacher, nice prophet. People loved him and followed him or they hated him and wanted to crucify him. And you know what? Jesus is still one of the most loved and one of the most hated individuals today. His name will either bring elation or anger as a response to many people. Walk inside your workplace and say, I love Jesus. Do you? And just watch the expression sometime on their faces. Some people love him. Some people get real skittish. In fact, angry. And I think that's the biggest form of bigotry that exists. To hate someone you don't even know. You've never even met. To form an opinion about someone you've never had the chance one-on-one to meet as your Lord and Savior. And then he zeroes in on Mary and he said, Yes, a sword will pierce, verse 35, through your own soul also. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This, I think, is the unfortunate thing about Christmas for so many people. is that we come to celebrate a baby in a manger, but we forget, like the front of your bulletin shows clearly, that the manger predicted the cross. That he was born for one goal, one purpose, one objective, to become a savior, which means he dies for the sins of mankind. Jesus said concerning his death, for this reason I came into the world. That's the purpose he even came, was to die. Imagine your whole life's goal being death. It was for Jesus. His life's goal was to die to become a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that is overshadowed and overlooked so many times at Christmas. I love the little story about the father and son driving through their neighborhood during World War II, mind you, looking at all the Christmas lights at their hometown in the States. They're driving down the street. The little kid notices that almost all of them had Christmas trees and decorations, but there were a few homes that had a star in the window, and some of them didn't. And the little kid said, Hey, Dad, well, why do some of the homes have stars and some of them don't? He said, son, the ones that have stars in the window are families who have son, a son in the war, fighting the war. Oh, okay. They're driving along a little farther and after the last house, the little child notices the evening star in the sky. He says, daddy, look, God must have a son in the war because his star is in the window. 
And God did send His Son to the war to fight against our sins. But imagine being Mary, listening to this prediction. I mean, she's already blown away at what He said, but then He turns to her and He says, a sword is going to pierce your own soul. Speaking of the fact that you as His mother are going to watch Him die on the cross, the whole purpose for which He came. And her life at the end, seeing His life tormented, will cause grief. And I wonder if Mary, at the moment Jesus was born, could have seen his whole life from birth to death and the whole purpose for which he came all in a moment, what it would sound like. One person says that it would sound like this, Mary's prayer. God, O infinite God, O infant God, heaven's fairest child, conceived by the union of divine grace with our disgrace, sleep well. Now imagine Mary saying this. Sleep well. Bask in the coolness of this night, bright with diamonds. Sleep well, for the heat of anger simmers nearby. Enjoy the silence of the crib, for the noise of confusion rumbles in your future. Savor the sweet safety of my arms, for a day is soon coming when I cannot protect you. Rest well, tiny hands, for though you belong to a king, you will touch no satin, own no gold, You will grasp no pen, guide no brush. No, your tiny hands are reserved for works far more precious. To touch a leopard's open wound. To wipe a widow's weary tear. To claw the ground of Gethsemane. Your hands, so tiny, so tender, so white, clutched tonight in an infant's fist, they aren't destined to hold a scepter or wave from a palace balcony. They are reserved instead for a Roman spike that will staple them to a Roman cross. Sleep deeply, tiny eyes. Sleep while you can, for soon the blurriness will clear and you will see the mess that we have made of your world. You will see our nakedness, for we cannot hide, our selfishness, for we cannot give. You will see our pain, for we cannot heal. O eyes that will see hell's darkest pit and witness her ugly prints, sleep, please sleep. Sleep while you can. Lay still, tiny mouth. Lay still, mouth, from which eternity will speak. Tiny tongue that will summon the dead, that will define grace, that will silence our foolishness. Rosebud lips, upon which ride a starborn kiss of forgiveness to those who believe in you and of death to those who deny you. Lay still. And tiny feet cupped in the palm of my hands, rest. For many difficult steps lie ahead for you. Do you taste the dust of the trails you will travel? Do you feel the cold seawater upon which you will walk? Do you wrench at the invasion of the nail you will bear? Do you fear the steep descent into the spiral staircase of Satan's domain? Rest, tiny feet. Rest today so that tomorrow you might walk with power. Rest, for millions will follow in your steps. And little heart... Holy heart, pumping the blood of life through the universe, how many times will we break you? You will be torn by the thorns of our accusations. You will be ravaged by the cancer of our sin. You will be crushed under the weight of your own sorrow. And you will be pierced by the spear of our rejection. And yet in that piercing, in that ultimate ripping of muscle and membrane, in that final rush of blood and water, you will find rest. 
Your hands will be freed, your eyes will see justice, your lips will smile, and your feet will carry you home. And there you'll rest again, this time in the embrace of your Father. Now that's Christmas. God crawled into a box to become a baby, to grow up, to suffer and to die. And He did. And now He's at the right hand of God the Father, and God says, have I got a Christmas present for you? Now it's Christmas Day. It's a time when we hang out at home and open up presents. Most of us have already done that. We've given gifts. We've received them. God has a gift free for everyone. And you know, at Christmas time, some of us ask, what can you give to the God who has everything? What does He need? Well, He wants your dedication, your commitment, your life. If you're a Christian, it's a time for recommitment. If you're a non-Christian, it's a time to receive His gift of eternal life. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, our Heavenly Father, who, who gave us that precious gift of life, thank You for sending that little baby, the one whom we follow, the whole purpose why this building is here and why we're seated here today is to follow Him. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that You will touch the lives of people who are here today who have either made a superficial or religious commitment or perhaps none at all and they need You desperately. They've never received the Savior. They've never had a personal walk with you. They don't know definitely if they're saved or not. I pray, Lord, you'd rescue them. As we're all praying for that, I just simply want to let you know about that gift and just ask you, take it. Take the gift. It's a free gift. Jesus died for you to save you. Free gift. Take it. If you have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I'm glad you're here today, but if, if you never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you've never prayed in your hour of need, but you have never given your life over to Jesus Christ and made Him your Lord and Savior. Why don't you do that today? What a great way to have Christmas. To say, happy birthday, Jesus. Here's my life, my heart. I'm going to follow you and be born again today. If I just described you and you want to know Jesus, you want to meet him for the first time, would you raise up your hand so that I can see it and pray for you? Raise up your hand in the air. I just want to see your hand and pray for you. Lift it up and keep it up. God bless you. Is there anybody else? God bless you over here toward the back. Over here on the side, right on. Who else? If God's speaking to your heart this Christmas day, don't, don't hold it back. Anyone else? You can put your hands down. Lord, our hearts are all lifted up to You and we thank You for the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. I pray that we wouldn't forget it. I pray that this wouldn't become a thing that just happens 
every 365 days. That Jesus is someone who lives in our hearts, reigns in our hearts, and we recognize the sophistication and the full meaning of your coming to this earth. And Lord, thanks for relating to us in our hour of need. In Jesus' name, amen.